Greetings, comrades, and welcome back to another episode of the Comrade Cast. And today, I have a spectacular episode planned for you guys. Unfortunately, I have an issue, something that has been plaguing me for the last couple days and has really been dragging me down, to be quite honest. And this issue is that I have a song painfully bored into my head, and I cannot get it out. As many of you watching and listening know, I like languages. Studying language is one of my passions. I find it endlessly interesting, and I highly encourage everybody to learn a second language out there. It will definitely expand your mind. And one of the sort of tricks and tips that I've learned throughout my years of studying languages is that one of the best ways to keep a language in your head and learn a language is to watch and listen to media that's familiar to you in your native language in the language you're trying to learn. So, for example, my favorite TV show of all time is King of the Hill. I love King of the Hill. It probably will never be supplanted in my mind as my favorite TV show. So one of my favorite things to do is go and whenever I can find it is watch episodes of King of the Hill in uh, Japanese dubs to learn the language. And because I'm watching something uh, that I've watched a million times, I already know the story of, all that kind of stuff. And because I'm watching something that I've watched a million times, I'm very familiar, my brain is not really focused on the stories or the particulars of the episode. You can actually sit there and absorb the language and engage with the language. This doesn't work if you're watching something you're not familiar with because your brain will be more engaged in what's happening in the narrative and that kind of stuff. And another great thing to do is songs, although these by and large are much harder to find because only very famous songs generally get translated into other languages outside of their native language. And one such song that is so famous that has been translated into numerous different languages is John Denver's Take Me Home Country Roads. So this song has a Japanese version, and I decided to refresh myself on the song recently and listen to it again and again and again and again and again. And now I have the Japanese version of Country Roads stuck in my head, and I cannot, for the life of me, get it out. And it's been in there for three days, and it's driving me crazy. I'd sing it for you guys, but it reminds me a lot of that scene from The Office when it's like Dwight and Andy are singing that song, and Aaron's there or whatever, and they're like trying to one-up each other. And then Dwight is like, yeah, I'll sing it in German now. And it always kind of makes me cringe when I think of that. Regardless, though, Yes, singing Country Roads in Japanese is one of the various extraordinarily useless talents that I do possess. However, despite this monumental obstacle, the show must go on. And we have a lot to talk about in this episode, a lot to cover, because there's actually some news happening, as well as sort of a main topic that I want to talk about. So hopefully I can get it all done within a reasonable time frame. Famous last words. But before we get into sort of the meat and potatoes, I want to go back and talk about something from the last episode really quickly. And I was very happy with this episode. I got a lot of really good feedback from a lot of different people from all over the political spectrum. And I feel like I may have actually hit a nerve a little bit because a lot of libertarians were like, yeah, I don't like it when conservatives steal the rhetoric of freedom from us and aren't actually committed to the cause type of thing. But I got a really good comment in particular from a guy who said he was an anarcho-capitalist. And he talked about how, in his opinion, just like how I, I thought he would, how, in his opinion, country rights don't exist. The countries don't have rights. That's not worth consideration. 
And when I read that, I, I realized I, I think I kind of misframed what I mean by country rights or federal rights or however you want to describe it. Maybe something more, maybe more a concept of collective rights is a better way to describe it. It just happens to be that a country or some other federal designation is the most common way we label our federal rights or collective rights. They'll come under nationalistic labels. But for a lot of left-wing people, it's an even deeper consideration, right? Because I agree, like when he said that, I'm like, yeah, countries don't have rights, but that's not exactly what I, I mean here. And I, I don't think I articulated it very well because yeah, it's not the rights of a country. It's the rights of all human beings as a collective species, if you will, the rights of the human collective, the idea of the international human spirit, the international human will. And I don't think anyone has ever really articulated this idea as well as Fidel Castro. That's right. For the first time, I'm going to quote El Presidente himself, in my opinion, one of the goats. I don't think it really comes as a surprise to anybody that I'm a fan of Fidel Castro. He encapsulated this idea best in his 1979 address to the UN. And uh, by the way, you guys should all listen to that speech. It's a real banger. It's, uh, in fact, one of his best. So he started off his speech by saying, There is often talk of human rights, but it is also necessary to talk about the rights of humanity. Why should some walk barefoot so that others can travel in luxurious automobiles? Why should some live for 35 years so that others can live for 70? Why should some be so miserably poor so that others can be extravagantly rich? The rights of humanity are a key consideration in any left-wing political thought. Uh, one of the best ways I feel like I could explain this <laughs> to my ANCAP friend here is to use a corporate example. So Jeff Bezos, CEO of Amazon, there's a famous anecdote about him that whenever he would have his big executive meeting with all the higher-ups at Amazon and they were going to decide corporate policy and directive and all that jazz, Jeff would always have an empty seat. And this empty seat, he would tell everybody, is to represent the customers, to represent the consumer, so that while we're figuring out this high-end policy and, and how we're going to run the company, let us make sure that we're always taking into consideration the customer, even though the customer can't be here with us, we'll have this kind of empty spot to represent them. So for left-wing people, when thinking about our politics, there's always a spot open there. There's always an open seat, which represents sort of the rights of humanity in this case. And I think the differentiator for a lot of left-wing people is, again, just how high up you put those rights of humanity in your hierarchy of rights. For example, I definitely believe that we always need to consider the rights of humanity, yet ultimately, unless we're in some sort of absolute disaster or uh, emergency scenario, the rights of the individual do take precedent over the rights of humanity. But I think there is a big mistake in kind of thinking that those are mutually exclusive a lot of the times. In fact, I believe that they go hand in hand the rights of humanity to have access to health care, to have access to clean water, to have access to a non-hostile environment. Do these considerations really violate the rights of the individual? Absolutely not. 
Anyway, I just wanted to clarify what exactly I was talking about and what I meant there in that last episode. So without further ado, let us move into the main topic of today. Today, I want to talk about a topic which I've had in my back pocket for quite some time, and I just couldn't figure out the right time to talk about it or the right way to frame it. And then finally, I had something happen to me recently where it's like, okay, I, I, I have the perfect way to talk about this now. Recently, I had the opportunity to catch up with a colleague of mine, someone who I hadn't talked to in quite some time. But I always appreciated talking to this person because I got past the initial horrific small talk stage, which I am genuinely awful at. One of the nice things about this show is that I can create the illusion that I'm more sociable than I really am. And there are some people that just have the gift where they can go up to anybody and talk about anything. I am not one of those people. I can only have a good conversation about something if I give a shit about it, if I actually care about it. And let me tell you guys, I don't give a fuck about the local sports team. I don't give a fuck about the weather. You know, I don't give a fuck about whatever celebrity bullshit is going on. None of that kind of stuff interests me. And a lot of people are much more interested in that stuff than I am. And talking about a lot of those kind of things is soul crushing to me. And I struggle with small talk as a result. And some of those things I can carry on basic conversations with, but it's just to more make the social experience not completely painful for everybody involved. I say that though, because I'm pretty sure this person has a similar attitude to me in that regard, though I don't necessarily want to put words in her mouth. But even though we have a similar attitude in that regard, we never actually had any kind of similar interest. In any case though, we're talking, we're catching up, and all of a sudden she starts talking about like topics of conversation that I would not have expected to have come from this person. She's talking about politics. She's talking about sort of strategic geopolitical concerns. She's talking about deglobalization. And the moment she starts talking about deglobalization, I'm like, that's very interesting. There's one person in particular who that phrase is very associated with. So anyway, we're continuing to talk. And all of a sudden, she pulls out her e-reader and she's like, hey, I got this book recently. I want to know if you heard of it because it made me think of you. And people know who are around me. They know my interests. They know that I'm a politically active guy, that I am very conscious of what's going on in the world, very conscious about current events, all that jazz. So anyway, she pulls out her e-reader and shows me. And I'm like, yes, absolutely. I have heard of this book because you're talking about Peter Zion, aren't you? I can tell that you've definitely been getting into his materials and reading some of his books because no one has popularized the phrase deglobalization quite like he has. So, of course, I said that not only am I familiar with Zion's work, I am a huge fan of his work. I think he does a great job in distilling a lot of these complicated concepts into a very easily digestible communication style for pretty much anybody to enjoy, in my opinion. And then this, of course, led into a broader conversation about a lot of these kind of uh, concepts around politics and what's happening in the world. And it led into a deeper conversation about that not only do I 
uh, appreciate Zion's work, but I source it for the podcast that I do. So long story short, I ended up against my better judgment, sharing this podcast with someone that I work with. And of course that can only end in absolutely good results. Here we go. Here's this place where you can find all my crazy, radical political views. Go nuts. No, she's solid. I highly doubt anything bad will come of it. Fact of the matter, she's probably listening to this episode. Shout out to you, comrade. You know who you are. In fact, if anything, it's a very good opportunity to at least give somebody who is feeling out their political values initially an actual fair shake at uh, left-wing values and particularly like far left-wing values. Because here in Berta, no one else is going to fucking do it. So there you go. From colleagues to comrades. Um, no. But the reason I wanted to talk about this is because this actually isn't the first time something like this has happened to me before. It happens to be the most recent and poignant example. All of a sudden, it's like geopolitics is becoming cool. All these people who I generally thought of as politically non-active, not engaged, didn't really think about whatever their political ideology might be. All of a sudden, these people are intensely focused in on what's happening in the world. All of a sudden, they're thinking about their politics. They're thinking about where they stand. They're thinking about the type of society that they want to see, the type of changes that they want to enact going into the future. For years, uh, the realm of politics used to be the realm of kind of weirdos like me. But now, finally, it's becoming a mainstream thing to talk about. Now, all of a sudden, people actually give a shit about their political values. And one thing I would be really interested to hear from people listening and watching is if you've felt a similar experience in your own personal lives, or maybe I'm just in my own bubble or what have you, but have you guys noticed that people who used to not be politically active or didn't care about politics all of a sudden now are, and all of a sudden are talking about them in a way that they never used to? I really do feel like that this is something that is happening to a lot of people and if I'm off base here, please let me know. But like I said, I, I do think that this is something that is somewhat universal. And I'd love to hear from broader perspectives. But the purpose of this episode isn't so much is to debate whether or not it's happening. My hypothesis is that it is. It's more to ask questions of why this is happening. Why now? Why are people becoming politically active? Why are people thinking about geopolitics? When a decade ago, these kind of considerations probably rarely, if ever, crossed their mind. And I think I've got a, a decent explanation as to why. And the core of why, I think, goes to one of the reasons why people get involved in politics in the first place. And to make this point, I'm going to quote somebody who you probably never expected me to quote. I am going to quote right-wing commentator and content creator Lauren Southern. In fact, I believe this has to be a record that this is the first podcast ever where both Fidel Castro and Lauren Southern are quoted in the same episode. Anyway, this quote actually comes from, she like disappeared for years or whatever. And I think she's, I haven't really been following her. She's still active, but she did this like kind of comeback video where she talked about why she kind of disappeared and, and what had happened. And it was actually a really fascinating video. And I, I especially kind of liked it as someone on the left because she spends 
a considerable amount of time calling out people on the right for their bad action. It's it's good to watch it from that perspective. But anyway, in this video, she talked about what draws people to politics in the first place. And one of the things she talked about is that in her time in political activism, and this is something that I, I can talk about as well for my own time in political activism, is that politics draws in broken people. And she talked about in that video how she saw a lot of these broken people in her time being really engaged in political activism. And I've seen those broken people too in, in my time in politics. Fuck, I'm a broken person myself. And that's a very real possibility for why I've been drawn to politics so obsessively my entire adult life. And the reason why politics draws in these broken people is because they're looking for answers. They want to figure out why they're broken, why society's broken, what's going on. And politics offers those answers, at least some semblance of those answers in many cases. The only issue is that uh, a lot of the answers that are offered aren't exactly healthy a lot of the times, but that is a discussion for another time. Here's the moment that we're living in right now, is that I think that finally politics is now leaving the realm of the broken. Because we are reaching a time when everybody is starting to realize, or maybe not everybody, but a lot more people are starting to realize that society is broken, that the status quo is broken. And while I personally believe it cannot endure, there are some people who do believe that the status quo can still endure, but society must make substantial changes in order to preserve it. So now people who aren't broken are seeing that things in society aren't going so well anymore. And now they are looking for answers and they are looking for solutions. And this is something that politics offers. This is something that politics and in a larger perspective, geopolitics offers us is solutions and answers to why things are broken in society and or why things are breaking and hopefully maybe some ways that we can fix them. And I think on top of that, there is almost a, another aspect here, which is that while people, even if they thought things were broken, back in the day, they used to entrust our politicians to fix them. And they used to have a, a certain amount of trust and faith that our leaders could manage the task at hand, could actually deal with whatever troubles and tribulations that might face us as society moves forward. And I have here uh, in front of us a picture of America's most recognizable politician, that is Senator Stephen Armstrong. And he puts the issue that we're facing, I think, best for us here in a little clip that I'm going to play. And I should say this isn't from the actual game. This is from Maxor's summation of the game, whose dialogue, in my opinion, should be considered every bit as canon as the game itself. The truth, then, us politicians aren't so trustworthy. We'll steal, make shit up, even lie to our voters. That's crazy. I know it's very hard to believe. The point here is, is that people know our politicians aren't up to the task. They lie, they steal, they make shit up. The thing is, even in, in the best cases, the politicians we have are horribly incompetent. 
it doesn't even matter if they're corrupt or not. They're just so incompetent that they can't get what we need to get done done. And 30 years ago, it was okay if we didn't have exactly the best stock of leadership and the best stock of politicians running the show because things could pretty much just run on autopilot and things were going pretty good and the status quo was humming along that you didn't really need to change anything or even do anything and things by and large turn out okay. This is not the case anymore as we've talked about several times on the show. We have a very serious set of dangerous factors coming toward us. We have declining demographics, which is going to lead to declining economic problems. We have deteriorating environments, which are going to lead to a host of not just economic problems, but of course, humanitarian problems. And there's a real feeling that the people in charge are in no way, shape or form up to that task. And because of that, I think a lot more people on an individual level are now searching for answers and they're searching for solutions outside of the political structure. Because whatever the political structure is telling us the answers are, most people aren't going to believe that that's what it actually is. So people are no longer looking to politicians for answers. They are looking to writers and intellectuals in some cases, like Peter Zion, they're looking for people maybe in an alternate media for solutions. Maybe a guy like Joe Rogan can try and fill that gap. In some cases, they might look to more academic people. Uh, they might look to more philosophical figures like a Slavoj Zizek. The point here is, is that people are no longer looking to the political system for answers to their political problems and for analysis of what exactly is going on in the world. And this is a huge, huge, huge indicator of a massive amount of distrust in the system. Even for political considerations, people aren't looking to the politicians to solve them. They're looking for people outside that area and people outside that arena for guidance, for support, for an explanation of why the fuck the world is acting so crazy. I'm not here going to tell you that I have exact solutions uh, to what's going on. For me, I'm much more about enjoying the ride here with you guys. I do have solutions and we've talked about them before. One of the big things for me again is that 10 years ago, I saw all the same problems in the distance. And 10 years ago, we could have avoided a lot more of them a lot easier if we made some minor changes. Now, however, 10 years in the future, we have done pretty much nothing to alleviate these oncoming icebergs, as I like to call them, and the amount we're going to need to change the course of the proverbial ship of state to avoid these icebergs is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. One of the things I say is that unlike most people whose politics have gotten less radical as they've aged, for whatever reason, I've gone almost more in the opposite direction where my politics have gotten more radical because I see more radical solutions as necessary to avoid the oncoming issues. And speaking of the world breaking, I do want to talk about uh, some current events and hopefully we can tie it into our main point here. And right now we are just seeing some absolutely insane shit once again going on in Israel. A very, very quick recap on what's been going on. 
This has been an ongoing saga since I believe it's January of this year, either very early this year or very late last year type of thing was when the Israeli Knesset was trying to push in a series of judicial reforms. And what these reforms effectively would do is offer the Knesset, which is like the Israeli Congress, the Israeli House of Parliament equivalent to override legislation coming from the Supreme Court. So in a way that um, in America, for example, if a, enough of the Congress votes to overturn a presidential veto, they of course can overturn the presidential veto. This would be something similar, but instead of being able to overturn, say, veto from the president, it would be overturning something coming out of the Supreme Court. Something like this does not exist in American politics. I've seen people trying to say that this kind of legislation that Israel is trying to do is similar to how it is in the United States. It is not. Effectively, the legislative body can overturn the judiciary if they have enough votes. Something like this, again, doesn't exist in America, doesn't exist in Canada, doesn't really exist in any system I know of. And the speculation as to why the Prime Minister of Israel, Netanyahu, is gung-ho about putting this type of legislation in is because he has a lot of uh, potential changes he wants to make to Israeli society, which may get vetoed by the Supreme Court. Changes which people, by and large, might not be so enthusiastic about. Changes of which the potential, the, the very potential of them existing, people are protesting vehemently against. At first, back when this started gaining a lot of traction back at the beginning of this year, the protesters were effectively able to put a lid on uh, these type of changes going through. Just in the last couple of days, uh, the Knesset voted to put these legislative changes through. And as a result, absolutely massive protests have erupted in Israel. We're going to go through some of the picture and video that I have for you here. This one, actually, I'm not a guy to usually do trigger warnings and that kind of stuff, but this one is a little bit disturbing here. This is a car ramming through a large group of protesters here on a highway in Israel. So yeah, pretty disturbing. You can see people just marching along, doing their own thing, tooting their horns, typical protest kind of stuff. And uh, Buddy just comes running through. And of course, you can hear people screaming in the background for a considerable amount of time before he actually gets there. I have another video here for you. This is the same incident, though, from a, another angle. Fortunately, it looks like nobody was actually killed in this incident. Have A West Bank settler has been arrested for attempting to ram protesters on Route 531, three wounded. But yeah, very disturbing. Next, we have, as a result of this, most of the Special Operations Unit, I'm going to try and pronounce it, active duty reserves have announced their end of service, crippling the force once commanded by Edra Barak, in, net, uh, in which Netanyahu served half an hour after the law was passed. 100 active reserve fighters joined 272 
signatories. So even people right in the military, people who are not just in the military, people who are special forces in the military and not even a, a special forces unit in which many of Israel's political elite have served in have said that as a result of the, of this law being passed, effectively, we are resigning our membership and are resigning our services in the special forces. It's again, it's a pretty big indication, at least for me, like this isn't just like hippy dippy, hippy dippy people that are upset with this kind of law. These are people who you would typically associate with being fairly right wing are not happy with what is happening. We have another report coming out that uh, Israel's Association of Public Health Physicians have received numerous reports that police are denying medical teams access to treat wounded protesters. In addition, well-marked medical treatment stations on the side of the road were attacked with water cannons. We got some pretty serious instances of potential police brutality happening here. We have Iran-backed Lebanese group Hezbollah on Monday saying its archfoe Israel was on the path of collapse and fragmentation, referring to divisions in Israeli society over the contested overhaul over its judiciary. So even Hezbollah is like chirping Israel over what's happening right now, saying that you guys are falling apart over this. Over here we have some really, and I'll, for the most part I'll, I'll end our discussion here, some really amazing pictures from what is happening here in Israel. And unfortunately, if you are listening to this, I'll do my best to describe what's happening here. But we have a large group of people here burning. I'm not sure what the hell they're burning. Whoops. I'm not sure what the... We have a large group of people here, a large group of protesters standing in front of a skyscraper burning something. Not sure what they're burning, but they're all holding Israeli flags and some are holding pride flags. Actually, our next one, we have an overhead view. We have an overhead shot of protesters marching down the street and it's so completely packed with protesters that you can barely see the road underneath. Here we have just a, a side shot of more protesters. Again, people burning things, holding uh, flag, Israeli flags. Another a shot of a similar vantage point. Either way, as you can see, there is a, a lot of anger uh, directed at this law. You have people extraordinarily animated over it. You have people marching in the streets constantly. And who knows where this is going to go. It seems like this time for Netanyahu, at least the die is cast. And he is not particularly interested in backing down. It will be interesting to see how far these protests can escalate and what will happen from there. But either way, there are some serious divisions obviously sprouting in Israeli society. And like I said, Netanyahu is definitely more than willing to force his hand in them. And he will have his supporters, one of who being famous libertarian Ben Shapiro, the libertarian who never met a boot that he didn't like. What do they say? His slogan shouldn't be, don't tread on me, but instead should be tread on me, daddy. Anyway, this is what he has to say about this particular legislation. He says, this current Israeli government had to pass the judicial reform. It is incredibly mild. Okay, I'm sorry, guys. I won't subject you to the Ben Shapiro voice. In any case, it merely says the judiciary cannot simply declare a law unconstitutional in a land with no written constitution on the basis of it being unreasonable. He is completely 100% lying about this. This is absolutely what is not happening with the law in any way, shape, or form. Imagine the Supreme Court of the United States routinely striking down 
popularly passed legislation outsiding nothing but their own view on whether or not such legislation is reasonable. No legal arguments or citation of written text, no authority, nothing. That is the situation currently. Yes, but this is, again, not actually what's happening. This is like a hypothetical scenario that Ben is playing out in his head. If the elected government stops its policy because reservists say they won't volunteer if it passes and financial and union powers say that they will help shut down the economy, that will incentivize endless societal shutdowns. The same means of anti-democratic shutdowns that will be used on all future legislation and all future governments. They aren't aligned with such protesters endangering Israel's economy and security. This is my favorite part of this. So basically he's saying like the people who are saying that we're going to strike and we're, we're not going to volunteer for the military services, they're, they're the true terrorists. They're the true bad guys because they will incentivize anti-democratic societal shutdowns. So people who strike, right? Apparently this is anti-democratic. The right to strike, the right to protest, the right to say, I'm not going to do what the government tells me to do because I am angry with it and I'm angry with the legislation that, that they're proposing. This is apparently anti-democratic in Ben's eyes. Fuck, how do people take this guy seriously, man? How do people not see what an absolute hypocrite this guy is? <sighs> anyway, sorry. The, the rest of it's not important, but we'll just read through it just for continuity's sake. The absurdity of morons like Thomas Frieden calling on Joe Biden to step in, the same Joe Biden claiming that the U.S. Supreme Court is undemocratic and undermining its own legitimacy is apparent. It's more about the Democrats increasing their own apathy for Israel than anything reality-based. I can actually agree with Ben on this one point here that the United States stepping in to meddle in Israeli policy over this is ridiculous. That notion is ridiculous. And the United States should in absolutely no way, shape, or form uh, decide that it's going to intervene on uh, behalf of Israel domestic policy. Ridiculous. And yeah, I guess there is one guy uh, advocating for that. And anyway, and then he closes off uh, by saying that Israel will not collapse. It will not break into civil war. It will continue to be a fractious and chaotic country with highly opinionated people who will fight each other and then share Iraq and Shimon and Copeland and Falafel. I, I do agree, though. I don't think that this is going to exactly break into a civil war. This isn't going to become a civil war, although it is certainly going to be the basis of a lot of civil disruption and civil disunity. But yeah, that's what I mean by Ben. Never met a booty didn't like. Uh, if you strike, the government should come in and crush you because you are evil and anti-democratic, apparently. And by exercising the one right you basically have to try and shape government policy as a normal human being. If you try and exercise that right, fuck you, we gotta crush you. I believe in freedom. In any case, tying this back to our main topic for the day, people can, not just in Israel, see what's going on, People across the world can see what's going on. Obviously, I'm here in Canada and I'm showing uh, people from everywhere what is happening and I'm not the only one doing this. We can all see that in a lot of places, that social order, that people's trust in institutions are breaking down and leading to chaotic results. And this is not going to be the first time that we see something like this in Israel or in many other countries. And this won't be the last time. And like I said, people can see 
this happening? And they're wondering why. Why? What is happening? What is going on? Why is there this turmoil? Why is there this unrest? And in my quest for solutions, I'm not really going to trust the people who used to be your typical solution bearers, right? They no longer seem to have the actual understanding of what is happening in the world these days. So I'm going to look outside of that. I'm going to look outside of traditional established information brokers. And honestly, by and large, I believe this is a hugely beneficial thing. That information is no longer gatekept in the way that it used to be gatekept. One of the things I do feel like the internet has really done is shattered this illusion that history is a set of lies that we agree on in the sense that there is no longer a set of lies that we can agree on anymore. The internet has given to us any number of lies and maybe a small number of truths that we can then try and glom onto. The problem though, and the issue really becomes in trying to make sure that the people can get to and find those truths in the sea of total bullshit and disinformation. And this is the real struggle that we're having right now in our society. The, the truth is out there. No, I'm not going to play the X-Files sound effect. But the truth is out there. And people figure out who the fuck has it. Who the fuck knows it. Who's got it. Where is it. Because the people we used to think had it. Now, we know they don't have it anymore. <laughs> I guess it's like a societal midlife crisis. Right now, society's kind of lost its identity. It's lost who it used to accept as established vendors of truthful information and is now looking for that kind of truth and understanding elsewhere. And it's a very messy and chaotic and oftentimes painful experience. Although as a hopeful optimist, I, I do hope that at the end, when everything shakes out, we're going to see a much better and much more democratized way of getting information and of course, verifying the truth of that information. Yeah, but unfortunately, democracy is messy because it involves a lot of people. And when you get a lot of people together, things generally do tend to get messy. So now let's jump into our feel-good story. It's going to be a real quick one. I don't have a lot of time to spend on a feel-good story, running out of recording time. Originally wanted to our feel-good story to be the collapse of Ron DeSantis' campaign. But unfortunately, I think that's going to take too long. So we might save it for maybe next week's episode. But here is a very short feel-good story that I have had in my pocket that I've wanted to share with you guys waiting for the opportunity. So it turns out that all along that Dr. Octopus was actually hiding out in Tokyo. And he has finally invented his glorious machine. And what we're going to see here is, is basically, I'll, I'll, I'll just read the little blurb here and then we'll watch the video. Masahiko Inami and his team at the University of Tokyo have created a wearable and exchangeable multi-armed device to explore the social interaction between multiple users and robotic limbs. Now, let us watch the video. This 
人の2本の腕以上にたくさん腕を増やせるってことだけではなくて実はこれあの背中のソケットでですね外したりつけたりでさらに別の人に貸したりということもできるようになるんですね。付け替えると今はこういう腕の形だけですけれども例えば将来背中から羽を生やしたりとかですねドローンをつけたりとかさまざまなアタッチメントを付け替えしながらいろんな能力を獲得していくそういうようなこともできるんじゃないかなというふうに思っています。These guys and their fiddles. Not really sure what that has anything to do with anything. That being said, though, if we start to hear stories of some sort of octo-limbed maniac running through the streets of Tokyo and causing mayhem, we will know who it is. But for me, the most interesting thing about、uh, what he talked about there, and if you're listening to the show, one of the things he said is that in the future, what he hopes to have with his little kind of backpack is that not only will you have Arms and whatever that you can attach to the back, but he says maybe we could have wings or drones or other sorts of attachments. So it wouldn't just be arms, right? He's he's really thinking ahead. This guy, he's really really thinking into the future that you can put whatever attachments you want onto this crazy backpack, and away you go. Look, I don't know how far away something like that is, but goddamn, it makes me feel like every day that kind of like the future is now, comrades. And with that, that brings us to the end of our show. This has been Dakar. It's signing off for now, and until next time, you guys take care. <laughs>